Iraq's attack, sir, do you believe that there is any connection to bin Laden's organization? Well, there may be some possible link. He and his spokesman are openly bragging about how they hope to inflict more pain on our country. I wouldn't put it past him, but we don't have hard evidence yet. Yeah, Ron. The seven-month-old son of an ABC News employee and a worker York. at the New York Post newspaper was diagnosed with CBS News Rather anchor Dan Rather exposed as well. Do you know how much mail, how many packages I've opened up? I don't. I don't want to touch the mail. It's a new form of human warfare. Kathy Nguyen did die due to inhalation and this time it's a woman in Connecticut that has provided more questions than answers. But until there is a suspect, no one will know whether this was a terrorist act and whether it is related to the September 11 terrorists who tried to rent a crop-dusting aircraft. I think if we're really being honest, if America's prepared for a chemical attack, the answer is no. Oh, my God! Uh, maybe we shouldn't be talking here. Maybe there's some anthrax flying around in the air. Pharmacy supplies of the antibiotic Cipro, one of the drugs known to fight anthrax, are thin. Gas masks sell out in Los Angeles. It's probably a little paranoia or anything, but I'm not going to take the chance. That's all. We face an enemy as ruthless and as unpredictable as any we've ever faced. And the road back to a sense of security could be a long one. I feel like uh, go to work. I don't know what's going to happen next. First anniversary, the 2001 anthrax attacks episode, and in this episode today, I have a guest that's going to join me. He goes by the name Compost School, which is also the name of his musical project. Um, I'm going to be referring to him as Max on the podcast. How's it going, Max? It's going good, and that is short for maximum. Okay. <laughs> Awesome. Just in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> so Max is joining me today because uh, he's been helping me over the past year uh, put together first uh, transcripts of all of the extremely long, in-depth, investigative podcasts we did on the 20th anniversary of the anthrax attacks on Media Roots Radio. And we've also been working out uh, how to put these transcripts um which he did an amazing job on tons of hyperlinks we're going to release the raw transcripts soon uh probably along well at least one of them first along with the release of this podcast but we've also been trying to work out how to put these investigations into like a written format that is followable um that'll actually capture people's attention who have zero interest in this case previously uh, so that's something that we're still working out, and I've like we've been going back and forth a lot, Max and I, about the case. Obviously, all the you know sort of evidence that's come up since the twentieth anniversary, uh, which feels like a lot. Um, it's probably the most like original research Media Roots Radio did 
on the subject so far since looking at the case. Um, and, you know, I can't say that anything new has popped up in terms of my research since those episodes that's like anywhere near as compelling as the actual evidence points in those episodes. So I will stress if you have not listened to those yet uh, and you're just, in, you know, a new listener to Media Roots Radio, make sure to go back a year previous to the episode you're listening to now um, and check out the at least three episodes we put out that all revolve around the anthrax attacks uh, and, and from all different angles. And one of them specifically is a five-hour-long, extremely long um, investigation about the uh, Inquirer, the first anthrax crime scene, the AMI building, David Pecker, Robert Stevens, um, Rudy Giuliani's anthrax cleanup company, uh, which you know, is probably one of the least explored areas of this whole thing that I think, you know, I'm going, excuse me, I'm going to continue to dig on that in the future, just because there's so little uh, done on that in this overall world of like anthrax research. And so that episode has all that stuff in it. It's a lot of twists and turns, but the two that came before that were sort of focusing on the hoax versus real anthrax letters that, um, throw a wrench in the entire idea that Bruce Ivins acted alone and was the culprit of the 2001 anthrax attacks. And then the other episode was about basically the two last deaths in the string of murders in the 2001 anthrax attacks, the deaths of Arlie Lundgren and Kathy Nguyen, which are both arguably very mysterious um, and largely ignored in sort of the overall retelling of this case you know even though people will put it in arbitrarily or obligatorily sorry in the timelines when they talk about these cases they don't really explain how they died and neither has the fbi um and i'm speaking from someone who has read the entire fbi report and you know looked very closely to see how much they mention about these two anthrax victims and they barely get i think they maybe get like two paragraphs total in the entire like 150 some page something report. Um, Robert Stevens also, the first anthrax victim, gets very little attention as well in the report. Um, and that's not to say that the postal workers got a lot more attention, but given the fact that we don't really have a full, we don't really have much evidence to show how Robert Stevens or the last two victims of the anthrax died, I think it deserves a lot more scrutiny than it has gotten. Um, but... Max, I wanted to really start this episode talking about basically the only new stuff that has come out since the last um, anniversary uh, seems to be sort of like a little bit of mainstream attention on the attacks, ever so slightly, uh, more than I have seen probably in my entire history covering these since I've been covering them. And it came in the form of a National Geographic special that was, I think, like four episodes long, um, very high-budget production, multi-part dramatized retelling of the case with Bruce Ivins played by the bad guy from Ghost. I don't know the actor's name, but the guy who basically kills Patrick Swayze, <laughs> not like the actual hitman in Ghost, but the guy who hires him, like the the guy who like works in the office who's trying to fuck to me more in that movie. He plays Bruce Ivins, 
and he's played like a psychic vampire, like, hey, I'm Bruce Ivins, check me out at work. I'm just annoying all my coworkers and I'm a real douchey motherfucker. Like, it's like, that's probably the most favorably he's shown in the in the documentary, or sorry, not doc, it's not a documentary, it's a dramatization. And then they actually show him like, you know, doing like target practice with a, a handgun in his basement and stuff like that, like on like, so, you know, with like an American flag up in the background. So there's all this like, you know, heavy pathos sort of shown in this um, dramatization. I don't think you have seen this one yet, Max, but you did see uh, right before we we started to record this episode, um, you and I both watched a Netflix uh, feature-length documentary. It's only one single part, you know, unlike all these other Netflix documentaries, it's just one it's the rarity where it's a one movie. It's it's an hour and a half long. It's not like the Bling Ring documentary is like five parts long. It's not like the the Nexium ones, which are like seven, ten, eight parts long. This is a small, digestible documentary, and it's I, I would say it's probably the only one that's ever been made that actually tr- that actually asks some questions, even though that's that's actually spinning it, I think, overly positively. Like, for the most part, um, it was, I would say, very boilerplate, mostly accepting of all the FBI's officials' words. Um, and I don't know, Max, what was your impression of this after sort of coming into this, you know, with a probably a different perspective on Anthrax, I would imagine, than most people at home, you know, just casually flipping through Netflix would have watching it. Like, where, what were your initial takeaways um i don't know what did, and what did you actually like about it uh well i kind of felt like um i mean before i watched it i thought oh this is like a documentary series so i thought i was going to be watching a bunch of episodes back to back yeah but i also kind of felt like after watching it like maybe it had originally been intended that way but it it, it felt like you were saying, there are a number of things they include. There's some things they leave out. It felt maybe like at one point they had intended on having it be a longer multi-episode thing, and then they had to cut some stuff for some reason or another and then um, jammed it into an hour and a half. Um, that was one thing I kind of wondered about it. I also thought it was interesting that I don't remember it ever being at the front of my Netflix like feed. Like, you know, usually you see yeah. whatever new stuff is coming up. I don't remember it ever being like on the front page of Netflix and maybe it was and I just missed it, but if it was um, it was super brief. Like I I don't remember it either. I definitely had to search um to see it pop up. Yeah, they they kind of buried it uh under a pile of content. Uh, but as far as the actual um, thing went, I felt like, you know, if I didn't know a ton about Anthrax beforehand, I would get the sense that, okay, this filmmaker is really looking at this with, you know, fresh eyes and they are... Um, they're questioning a lot of things about the official narrative um but i think once you know more of the details of this case like what you've talked about and 
your episodes, um, it becomes obvious that they left quite a few things out or didn't look at quite a few things. So it's hard to know what the actual like thesis of the filmmaker is, what their position is, what what they ultimately believe about this case. And it, I mean, it felt like they they raised, like you said, a lot of important questions, but then they sort of pivot um, at the end to something that I think kind of takes the attention of the viewer away from those questions. I mean, it's the first time in my adult life as somebody that didn't really have anthrax on my radar growing up, like as it was happening, I don't really remember it. I only know about it now in retrospect. Um, so on that level, I feel like it's good to have it out there on something like Netflix to bring people's attention to it. It's just a matter of whether or not it's going to draw in the attention of the type of people who are like, oh, I want to investigate this further. or I'm more deeply interested in this case now. Or if it's going to leave people going like, oh, okay, well, I watched that and I feel satisfied with that result and uh, not really think about it anymore for another 20 years. So are you basically saying that there's some small amount of net good and just the service of a documentary that asks some questions being widely available on Netflix? Like beyond that, did you, was there anything like specific about the documentary that was like done well or that you thought like, I thought it was really, uh, polished really yeah. um i like the production level of it mm -hmm. um i think it captured the sort of spookiness of a, of this whole case just sort of the the dark ambience of it the dramatization side of it uh i liked but i don't know if that's more just my desire to find to be entertained yeah i don't know i i go back and forth on the the level of whether or not if there's a net good to put something in the public eye, if it's also intentionally or unintentionally ignoring like a massive body of, of other evidence. So I don't know. I don't know as far as net good, but, but I definitely felt, feel like it's good to, to have it sort of back in the public consciousness, you know, through Netflix and, I mean, I like that guy from Shield, from the Asian <laughs> Shield. You know, that's great. Yeah. That's great to see him. Um, you know, over on Netflix. Although, you know, I'm surprised with the the Marvel Disney connection that he didn't end up doing the Nash, the Nat Geo one. Yeah, that's since a good point. Nat, since yeah. Nat Geo is a Fox and Disney, <laughs> maybe he was. Maybe he was. Uh, he was in the. He was up for, in the running for it, and he got passed over. And he's like, God damn yeah. it! I want to play Bruce but, Ivan so bad. And then, you know, fast forward like six months and they were like, you know, who we should call? Yeah. The guy that we said not to do it from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I thought, I mean, but, as far as his performance, I mean, I will say acting wise, it was fine. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there was a maybe a little bit of skepticism baked into his performance. Like there was a tiny hint where the directors were like. We, we, you know, you're pretty, we're pretty sure this guy did this, but there's like a tiny element where maybe he didn't do it. So like, cause they didn't cartoon villainize his portrayal, which I guess is good. But I mean, I think overall 
it's hard to say how many of these things were deliberately omitted or delib- or omitted just because they didn't have the time to cover it. And, you know, weighing out everything, it's kind of like, I would say there's only a little bit of good in terms of what the documentary resulted in. And that was basically just, you know, having people presented in it that were skeptical of the official story and people that were affected by it personally, like the Brentwood postal workers. I had never seen that before, you know, really even on the news, even though they played some news clips of some of these postal workers, like being skeptical in the past. I mean, they, that was like a blip on the radar that I barely, I have never seen those clips. So that was probably the, in terms of like a public service, this documentary did, that was probably like the only thing where I was like, that's valuable you know, not just for people like me, but anybody who wants to reach out to anyone who was directly involved, who had like a relative that died. Um, because most of these people are not talking. So, you know, I guess in all my years of researching this, I was not, I just didn't know they would talk. Um, and I've tried to reach out not to these specific people before, but I've not had very good luck in general. And so, you know, it kind of gives me some new hope in that regard. The style of it was um, was slick, as you said. The, the the clip digging I thought was really well done, um, but in the end, I mean, I think that you know it's. I think what it probably it did in terms of a disservice in terms of like if you're just making a documentary about this, and you don't know what to think about the case, and you're sort of on the fence about it, you would think they would have at least had like a journalist or an expert who really was researching this or doing journalism about it and knew enough about it to have like an alternative opinion or theory to pr- presented from them. So I was surprised not to see that. Cause it's a little much to have just like the FBI against like the family members, you know, basically, or the, cause what was the counter? Like they had like several FBI people being interviewed on there. Um, but in general, their weight really stood the strongest in terms of like expert opinions. They didn't really even have like a scientist that they tapped except for that one guy. But you didn't really know that he was skeptical of Bruce Ivins being the killer until like the end. Like he wasn't really contributing any sort of alternative hypothesis. You know what I mean? Yeah. They buried the lead on that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think his name was Paul, Paul Kine. Yeah. 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 He was the one, he was seemed the most, sort of skeptical and they did like I did feel like they the way that they framed his um basically his statement saying like no I don't think that it's obvious that it was him uh that it was Bruce Ivins uh that they framed that by putting that clip immediately after the FBI guys at Vince Lisi I think uh right after he says well it has to be him has to be him and we don't always solve this stuff with you know with uh hard-hitting yeah you uh, got scientific <laughs> evidence sometimes i mean he's basically just saying like the fbi just works on vibes basically <laughs> yeah you got to zoom out and see the whole picture yeah and then immediately after that they cut to paul kind going no it's not at all obvious and, you know and here are the reasons why but they don't ever really I mean, it's so deep in the documentary and they don't really ever go anywhere from there with in terms of, um, you know, like, okay, so what else could it have been? And where they do go from there is focusing on the postal workers, which I think is important, but it seems to be putting a bow on it 
that set that says, okay, well, focus your ire on the malfeasance of the government and yeah. uh, the post office, you know, and letting these people get exposed to anthrax and not taking care of them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it almost does serve as a distraction. I mean, if you want to look at this with cynically, not, I mean, I don't even think it's cynically, it's just realistically, because this is an ongoing cover up. It has been a really long time. Somebody got away with this. And I'm convinced they did probably more than one person. And this documentary you know, they really do let the FBI's opinion be the strongest weighted opinion. And in 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 terms of actual counter evidence, they hardly present any at all. Um, there's not any, you know, they don't really have anybody saying, but, you know, there's this reason why this evidence isn't very strong. There's not an element of that. So it doesn't even matter, actually, that there are open questions left because ultimately you're left with the impression and the evidence is just weighted in your mind. It's like, Look at it like a scale. It's like how many things do you have to throw in the other bucket to hold on to by the end of the documentary? You have almost nothing. So mm-hmm. when it's in terms other, of other than just their word, exactly, or their, or their their expertise as investigators, but but the you know the the scientists are also investigating. I mean, they they that's their job also is investigating whatever scientific mystery they've dedicated themselves to. So. You know, you can't really disregard what Paul Kime says in his, you know, response that uh, it's not obvious to me that it's a so, cop yeah, out. It, yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I don't mean to say like that the the postal workers stuff is a distraction, but it does kind of feel like they become sort of weaponized. Yeah, I can uh, see that. Like like, well, look at this. Mm-hmm. Look at these guys. And, and and it is a genuinely sad and heart-wrenching story. Absolutely. You know? like, and, and and that's basically how the documentary ends. Yeah. Is 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 them talking about how miserable they are, how they haven't really gotten any relief, how, you know, the they knew ahead of time that the building was infectious and they were, you know, but you know, the you look at the the heart building and their response there and these other Senate buildings. And you see what they do when they really care about people. And I think those are all really important points, but in terms of the documentary, it serves to take your attention away from all of these like discrepancies and inconsistencies and focus it on something that really does demand attention. But it's almost like there should be two different documentaries, one about the postal workers and one about all the rest of this stuff. Absolutely. Um, it do, it feels almost like, I, I mean, I don't know enough about the director or whatever, but it feels like a bit of a bait and switch to me. To me. Yeah. I mean, I think I can, I think I'm almost like looking at it from like almost like a functional perspective in terms of I'm going to take what I found in this movie and build on it in the same direction I've already been going. Like I'm going to reach out to, you know, the people who are interviewed in this movie who actually were personally affected and who think that the government not just fucked up, but lied. I mean, that's a very important thing to like, you know, and I'm sure some of these people actually that were shown in the documentary would want, want to see um, the Howard Troxler stuff that, you know, we sort of presented last year and, and, you know, 
I think it would maybe even give some of those people some new, you know, energy to be like, okay, good. They're like, there's still stuff being found out there. Um, and but, but beyond that, I mean, the way it is, it does do a disservice in the sense that they don't, you know, except for maybe one or two things they let slip through that those people say, it's not an actual piece of evidence that you can build anything on except for, you know, they leave one more open-ended question. They let one of the guys say the official tally of deaths and infections is probably a lie, but then they don't really explain what that ultimately means. I mean, right. that's what I, how I've always felt since looking at this case is that we don't know for sure. Could be many more. It probably is more. But for some reason, even some of the you know most skeptical journalists like Marcy Wheeler, who used to be more of a skeptic in the past, would always sort of say, no, that is the official, like, we know that's how many people. And it's like, well, how do we, we just really don't know. And I think that, you know, the more of these postal workers maybe we could talk to, we can really reinforce just that and have that be more of an understood given when people look at this case overall, instead of being like, well, we have to look at within this frame of, you know, 17 infections, five deaths, um, and, and sort of create a new frame where it's like, we ultimately do not know. This was covered up. Um, and clearly they let these people just sort of, you know, fend their own devices. So, you know, there's, I, I don't know. I mean, I, that's really all I have to say about that. I mean, there's not, (laughs) I don't, I guess that the main thing that I thought was maybe like almost like borderline criminal that the documentary left out was they ended it with so much focus on the DNA, uh, the genome sequencing. They were like, once technology and like computers could do genome sequencing so good, that's when the case really kicked up in high gear. Then we were able to analyze the first sample that Bruce Ivan sent us, AKA the murder weapon, like part, partly the murder weapon, like the, you know, like the, if you're imagining the bullet as the anthrax, the flask is like the weapon, it's like the gun. And they're claiming that that original flask that he sent them at the very beginning of him helping on the investigation was the murder weapon it was using the attacks because genome sequencing had gotten good enough now where they could go look back at that flask and be like, yep, we got them. But then the National Academy of Sciences, the agency that the FBI commissioned to verify their DNA genome sequencing research, basically came out and said that that's not, you didn't do it properly. You've, you, that is not the conclusion you can draw from that. Yeah, and, I think I have the quote here. It's, the NAS committee released its report on February 15th, 2011, concluding that it was impossible, quote, impossible to reach any definitive conclusion about the origins of the anthrax in the letters based solely on the available scientific evidence. Yes. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating about that is that's a really easy thing. I mean, I feel like I was kind of even lazily put it into my documentary from, I don't know how old it is now, like five, six years old. Uh, American Anthrax, where I threw in a clip or two from that National Academy of Sciences press conference. I put some text on the screen saying that the ultimately the only piece of physical evidence that the FBI stands on for this case was disputed by the agency the FBI hired to verify it. Mm-hmm. And they decided to go forward with their conclusions in a press conference before the NAS is done. And the NAS mentions that in their final report. They're like, mm-hmm. We were supposed to, they were basically supposed to wait for us. And they're like, nope, you go ahead and do your thing. We already paid you do it. We're going to go forward with it because we don't need your verification anymore. Eggheads. <laughs> so, 
I mean, how easy would that have been for them to throw in the documentary after all those FBI agents said that? I mean, they decided for some reason they decided not to say that. And I thought that that was, that's a little bit beyond negligent. To me, that's almost like, were you afraid you were going to offend the FBI and not be able to interview them if they knew you were going to put that in, you know? I mean, it's not easy to get FBI agents who talked, who worked on this case to sit down in a documentary. I, I feel like you probably have to really convince them that you're kind of on their side to get them to sit down and be so comfortable. It's, you know, the whole concept of access journalism. So, I mean, yeah. did you get that vibe from it that it's like, you know, even though they seem like they're asking the FBI some hard questions here and there, it's like, I mean, it was pretty, you know, they seem pretty fucking comfortable in those, during those interviews. Yeah. And the counterweight to them was the, the other scientists, but I didn't feel like it was an even counterweight. I, no. You know, and, and I, yeah. I, they were handicapped. They way. didn't, I mean, if they, it almost seems like they probably removed via editing the actual evidence point those scientists brought up. Like, yeah, he maybe was in the hot, um, hot suites for weird hours of the night, but ultimately it doesn't matter because the equipment didn't exist there. I think maybe they gave that a very brief voice at some point somehow that like the equipment wasn't there, but they didn't emphasize that it's like the hot suite evidence they're trying to say is like, He's doing all these weird hours in the middle of the night. Like it all, it doesn't mean anything ultimately if that they couldn't have done it there. That's like the whole, so it's, it's the, all those, it's almost like via lies of omission is the only way these things can kind of seem like they're strong, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and no mention of the, of the hoax letters, which to me is just like, or the quote unquote hoax letters, which like, I don't understand how you can't, how you wouldn't bring that up at all in the documentary which is kind of amusing to me in a way it's almost like endearing to hear you say that because i feel like i you know me and gumby are the ones who sort of introduced you to that and yet i didn't know about it until like eight years into looking at this case so like mm, the well, fact that it's such a big that it means so much to you is like actually like it's i think it's good because it's i mean it's it shows how much the dynamic or the paradigm shifts just based on that alone like it like, came up in other in some other stuff i was reading about it too though and in, in a way yeah. that i feel like it does have to i mean at this point maybe it wasn't like years ago i mean obviously the first time i heard about it was through you and gumby's work but uh i've since like read you know read about the hoax letters sure. in other places too and it, it feels weird to just not even i mean do they even acknowledge like Oh, a number of hoax letters were sent too, you know, that sent people in a, a frenzy. Like, I don't even think they mention it, do they? I mean, the, the documentary. Well, no, the documentary doesn't mention it at all. But I mean, the reason I said it's endearing is because, like, if you go back and watch any other anthrax documentary, all the mainstream anthrax stories, aside from the early Hatfield ones, don't mention the St. Petersburg letters at all. I think the FBI only mentioned it once in an official press conference. Like it was, it was like the New York field office head. He mentioned the St. Petersburg letter. Like I have a actual clip of him talking about it. Um, but it's like so early in the case that they don't say anything like definitive of like, these are the same sender as the other letters. Like they don't comment on that. It's just like, we got this letter. Someone here has anthrax. 
The letter came from St. Peter. Like they're almost talking about it like it's a real letter at the time. Um, so it's, they're vague about it, but that's probably the only on record public statement they've ever made about it. Robert Mueller, you know, there's a certain pivot point in the investigation where they turn towards the public and do a press conference and say, we need your help. Here are the four anthrax letters, pictures of them. We need you to think as if you recognize his handwriting and call into the FBI. Like they, they were asking the public to do this. And at that point, they also had developed an FBI profile of like a lone nut profile, basically, uh, you know, to distribute internally and also to like labs across the country that have access to anthrax um, for them to like police their own employees and, you know, think, is there anyone here who matches this, <laughs> this profile? In general, though, the hoax letters have slipped through the cracks completely and I think part of it is, as we've talked about, you know, back and forth for a while, is that the Stephen Hatfield lawsuit made that subject in general get buried along with all the a lot of the other leads about Stephen Hatfield. And I think that's part of the reason why they've disappeared from the narrative. But you're right that there is a lot of stuff out there. If you look back, I mean, if you just re- if you Google search St. Petersburg anthrax letters, hoax letters, you'll find a lot of stuff about them. And you'll find, you know, we have plenty of stuff in the archive, uh, the anthrax cache about them as well. But for some reason, they've, they've not been included in any of like the recent iterations of the attacks. And there was some revisionism that has gone on. And I, you know, I point to the Hatfield lawsuit, but I don't know. I can't say for sure the reason or if it's it serves some kind of function. But let's just say that there is like a form of revisionism that has happened where that's not considered part of the case anymore. It's sort of been, you know, it's just been erased from the narrative. And who knows how many FBI documents internally they still have in fo- files somewhere hidden away talking about these. I mean, they probably have hundreds, maybe thousands of just stuff done on these letters. Um, and that's, you know, and hopefully just getting more attention about just the that aspect of this, um, which I actually want to talk about next because... You know, I think even though it's like a year old now, which I've re- really discovered this, I still feel like it is one of the biggest things in the case uh, that could actually yield maybe new discoveries. Like, for example, there are other people out there who have said that they've seen these other letters, like firsthand, these other hoax St. Petersburg letters. Firsthand, they've they've looked at the handwriting Um for some reason, those are not publicly available yet, but I, I'm, I'm hopeful that because they have seen them, uh, that that means that they're not like destroyed. You know, there's, they're, they're out there somewhere and they will some, at some point, maybe we're going to see them, but you know, and I don't know what that's going to yield if it'll just like reinforce the point we've you know been making this whole time. But I mean, let's go into the, um, Unless you want to say anything else about the documentary, I mean, feel free to. But well, just that it it feels weird to me to not include it at all. But yeah, maybe maybe you could say like, oh, the director just thought it made the narrative too muddy or didn't feel like it was a home run. I have a hard time believing that. But regardless, I I feel like the things about the film that are good are sort of like more artistic things 
Yeah. Almost, you know, and, and to me that sort of serves in my mind, if, if it looks great and it's really well done, but then the actual content of it leaves you feeling kind of confused if you already know about the case or feeling sort of like we've already kind of talked about the way that it built up and then it sort of passes you off to the story about the postal workers and then it kind of says oh but the dna evidence proves that it had to the way that it's really well done serves to sort of i don't want to say that it's disinfo but but good disinformation or like a good well-made like hangout would be really like polished and nice and it would like you would the experience of watching it would feel uh smooth like it did yeah if to somebody that doesn't already know about the case it passes by would pass by your bullshit detector i mean if this was a slick piece of disinformation we're looking at it that way um, there are definitely some functions. I could see some specific functions that would have served. I mean, just the amount of weight it gives to the FBI versus any other. And I don't just mean just showing FBI versus scientists. I mean, like the actual evidence that's presented, you know, they don't, they don't give any real counter evidence and they don't even suggest there's no other hypothesis suggested other than it might not be Ivan's, which is yeah. very brief, very vague and not really substantial in any form so i mean the good questions it raises and the and the the important threads that it pulls on it almost they almost only serve to sort of sell you on the credibility of like oh well he must be really taking a good hard look at this because he doesn't actually the, the documentary doesn't seem to explore them further so yeah that that to me does kind of say like uh it seems like a bit of a hang out flashy yeah i mean artistically speaking it was it was well done i mean the clip digging was good um but yeah the way they were presented to the way that um it would sort of like throw the clips in like on screen yeah like uh ivan's would be in the lunchroom watching tv as he like made his lunch and then the clip would come up on the tv i I thought it was framed in in a nice way it was Um, it was like a high budget version of some of the you know the um amateur compositing i've tried to do on my on my stuff and i i wanted to just before we go on to the um the whole details of why the saint petersburg hoax letters versus the real anthrax letters uh, it's such a significant discovery. Um, but I just wanted to, you know, kind of just, you know, not to suck our own dicks too much here on Media Roots, but I just wanted to just remind people quickly of what we put together for anybody else who wants to actually look into this case. Um, you know, we've collected together a massive archive of anthrax-related official documents, news clippings, are related to the attacks, the subsequent investigation. I mean, we have pretty much every single official government document in there. So if you just want to look at it all in one place, you can find all of the FBI, the DOJ documents about the case, and just a ton of other stuff too that kind of 
goes in tandem with all the other podcasts that we've done on this subject. I mean, the amount of news clippings and characters, if you even just go to the, I'm trying to remember what the actual folder is called, the Anthrax Characters folder. Um, these individual people in here, you know, there's, it's just a trove of information about each one. Um, some of them, you know, there's less information than others, but, you know, even just the Gloria Irish uh, folder, I had forgotten how many news clippings and like real estate listings of hers were in here, um, which is pretty amazing. But make sure to take a look at that. Um, I'll post the link like on social media. It'll be in the show notes for this if you have not looked at this archive. Um, and, you know, I I would say that Media Roots Radio is probably the first entity to actually like bring a photograph forward of these of one of these St. Petersburg hoax letters. Um, we, you know, there's the only new uh, information I have about the actual search for more photographs or finding better quality versions of the photograph that we've already shown is that I do have a slightly higher quality version of the photograph that I have since obtained and posted online since the release of that uh, 2021 podcast. So if you, I'll post it again as well in the show notes. It doesn't really add too much other than Oh yeah, you know it's it just sort of makes it more clear that the that the handwriting looks very similar to the handwriting on the real um, anthrax letters. Um, we also uh, interviewed, uh, even though we didn't record the interview, but um, I was given permission to relay uh, what I discussed with them. We interviewed one of the people who was uh, who received one of these hoax anthrax letters, a reporter for the St. Petersburg Times by the name of Howard Troxler. And that's actually going to be written up in a piece that Max and I are working on together. Um, and that's going to come out. We don't know when it's going to come out, but that's sort of going to follow this podcast. Not to beat a dead horse, but this St. Petersburg hoax letters versus real anthrax letters timeline. You know, it was put together by someone named Barbara Hatch Rosenberg pretty long time ago she actually put this timeline together in august of 2002 to me at this moment in my like just where i'm at in my understanding of this case and all, all the stuff that i've taken in over the years this to me serves as the best timeline overall to understand the case um and when i say the case i mean with the inclusion of not just the four anthrax letters that we know of and uh, just those four letters, but the inclusion of four other additional letters that were sent from St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, which is quite a distance away from where Bruce Ivins lived in Maryland, um, that had uh, something like talcum powder or baby powder in them that had no real anthrax in them, uh, that contained letters that were saying more wacky or unusual things than death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great, like the anthrax letters mostly said. Uh, these letters said things like uh, rider truck uh, bridge explosion, see the, or see the something flies, see how it flies or something. Um, like there's, and some of the, um, the characters in some of these letters that were written for St. Petersburg are written in like Russian with like Russian characters in them. And the reason why these St. Petersburg hoax letters 
are so significant in the real anthrax case um, is because all the evidence points to the fact that these appear to be done in tandem with each other in coordination with each other. That whoever was sending the letters from New Jersey, Trenton, New Jersey, was also coordinating with somebody in St. Petersburg or who is sending them from St. Petersburg, Florida. And part of the reason I say that is because if we're working backwards from Bruce Ivins, or sorry, from the FBI's official case conclusions about why they think Bruce Ivins was the sole anthrax killer, one of the things that they do in it is they do this trick where, you know, there's a lot of missing time where they try to find any available space of time where Ivins was in the hot suites, for example, saying he spent all this time in the hot suites, so this must mean that he was doing, he was making the anthrax in there, even though they didn't have the equipment uh, capable of doing that kind of anthrax there. There's another aspect of the FBI's conclusions in their case file where they say, well, we can't account for where he was these hours of the early morning going into like seven in the morning. You know, his wife wasn't paying very close attention to him. He would leave sometimes in the middle of the night. He could have left to go down to New Jersey twice, you know, taking a, a pretty far road trip down to New Jersey in the middle, the early, very early morning, like three in the morning and gotten back before anyone would have noticed. Even though they have no evidence to suggest that, they still try to fit that in with this unaccountable time sort of concept that they're working within, you know, which is a very, a huge stretch uh, just based on looking, I mean, looking at their case, I think it's a huge stretch to suggest even that, uh, that because they can't account for his time, that's when he would have been able to go down to Trenton to mail these letters. Again, there is no actual evidence, direct evidence that he did that. It is all circumstantial. Um, now, what's interesting is if you base the premise on that these letters were sent by the same person, like if they, you know, if Bruce Ivan's the only one who did this, and I can show you evidence that the FBI actually thought that the St. Petersburg letters were done by, you know, the same person who did the real anthrax letters or were working together with them, then basically you would also have to account for a much longer trip to St. Petersburg two separate times, not just one time, but that would mean that Bruce Ivins would have had to have taken two separate trips to New Jersey, which the FBI already has to sort of, you know, come up with this trick where they're like, oh, we don't know where he was then, so he could have gone down. They would have had to do it for two more trips to St. Petersburg where he definitely would have been noticed, and there would have been no way whatsoever for them to fit that into you know, what they knew of Bruce Ivan's activities. So, and why, okay, so I guess let's just start with why uh, you, like maybe for you, Max, like what was it about the St. Petersburg letters or maybe when you listened to those podcasts or however you heard about them that that stood out to you as the most, you know, compelling thing about them? Because there's, there's many aspects. I mean, there's the handwriting that looks similar. There's the, um, the, the timing what specifically is there something specific that where you're like, that is really, you know, that is like really quint, like impossible. <laughs> the timing, the timing okay. for sure. Because if, if there were hoax letters being mailed out already in September and the first reported case 
of anthrax attack was Stevens on what he was checked in the hospital on the 2nd of October. Yeah. So how would this hoaxer have known to, to do this elaborate anthrax hoax at the exact same time that the person sending the quote unquote real anthrax letters were, was presumably sending out their anthrax letters, you know, like this, this St. Petersburg hoaxer was just like, just happened coincidentally to be dreaming up a hoax of sending letters with anthrax in them. Like before, you know, two weeks before somebody actually comes down with anthrax and that's the first time it's really publicly discussed. I mean, I don't know. I mean, what, that, that to me is the most, that, that to me was when I was like, this is too fucking weird. This is too fucking weird. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a second on that because what if, you know, what if someone could just say, well, you know, after September 11th, there's a lot of crazies out there. There are all there are already a lot of anthrax hoax letters being sent to the mail throughout the 90s. Even this abortion, um, anti-abortion activist, apparently, and this is actually a weird story that it deserves some more scrutiny too. Is this there was a case actually like that got closed right before 9/11, where this like anti-abortion activist got blamed for sending like something like over 400 hoax anthrax letters to the mail to like different Planned Parenthoods and things like that. So I guess the devil's advocate argument I'm making is, you know, what is, what, what is the timing matter so much if there was just anthrax letters coming like through to all these different targets, like every month. And especially after nine 11, there would be probably more crazy people being like, yeah, let's fucking, you know, scare more people, you know? Like watch the world burn, like Joker, <laughs> Joker types. Yeah, like anthrax is hot right now. Yeah, All the yeah, crazies yeah. are sending out like <laughs> fake anthrax. Well, What's the other thing to that, too Max? is that uh, <laughs> the those earliest hooks letters and the earliest anthrax letters were sent to the same places, like the oh, Saint okay. Petersburg okay. letters, the targets. That, yes, the the targets, NBC and New York Post. So it's two, okay. So it's the combination of the fact that the same targets and, timing, and they would have been sent before there had been knowledge of this, what is now considered the anthrax attacks of two thousand. You know, mm -hmm. before that, it was just this critical mass of whatever hoax letters. But the fact that then these hoax letters specifically seem to be so tied to the real letters in some ways than not in other ways like mm -hmm. with this sort of intentional mix and match of details where it's like some of the hoax letters you know have elements of the real letters or you know like the locations or the the lettering on them and the timing all of it to me together drew me in but specifically the dates were when i was like oh that is yeah a little bit weird i think i sort of started by looking at this backwards because i remember the first time an anthrax hoax letter actually stood out to me as being a compelling coincidence 
um, was the one when I read about Judith Miller getting one, just because of her connections to biodefense, her cozy relationship with Bush officials. I remember thinking that that one seemed like, you know, that seemed that one seemed the fishiest to me, and I didn't think much else of it, and until I looked again, you know, found this Howard Troxler letter. Because for some reason, one of these St. Petersburg hoax letters was sent to a guy named Howard Troxler, who wrote for the St. Petersburg Times. And for some reason, that's the only one that we can see a photograph of right now. Like, unless there's one somewhere else sitting on the internet or somewhere in a photo archive somewhere, it's un- I've never seen it. It's very hard to track down. But as, as I said earlier, other people have seen it. But the lettering, it was the lettering on that letter photograph, or sorry, the envelope photograph of the one sent to Howard Troxler, where I was like, yeah, the, these hoax letters are clearly connected. Like, I don't even know if I learned about the targets until actually after I saw the handwriting similarity. And I don't even mean, you know, if you're a handwriting analyst and you look at these side by side, I don't think, even just visually, I don't even think they're written by the same person. That's not my impression of why that's significant. It's more like, it lends to the idea that there are similarities in the behavior, like that this was sort of uh, conceptualized by someone, meaning like we need to write these letters in this like blocky text and like follow this sort of look, you know, to like the... It's, it's less about the handwriting and more about like the brand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you could just like describe to someone brand. on the phone probably like, you know, here's how to write out the handwriting. Like... I mean, you could, I mean, you, and it probably would end up looking similar to, you know, it's like you could describe someone how to write that way. And that's at least how I imagine it in my mind. Um, and so, I mean, all these things combine, um, you know, if, if you're completely unfamiliar with what we're talking about and you're listening to this, uh, let's, let's really sort of drive it home with the actual timeline that Barbara Hatch Rosenberg put together because, I mean, we'll, just starting with the first one, which is suspicious enough. I mean, as you said, the the actual anthrax news of an anthrax death first got reported on October 5th, or sorry, October 4th, maybe, because it was reported right before Stevens, the first victim, actually died. Uh, so on October 4th is when we get the first report of it. Now, according to this timeline, um, on September 18th, 2001, is when the Trenton letters were sent to NBC and the New York Post. And Barbara Hatch Rosenberg surmises, and probably to the National Enquirer, although according to my research and looking at, I don't know how much, you know, she's looked at the same stuff I have. She wrote this in 2002, so maybe her opinion's different now. I would estimate the National Enquirer letter that killed Stevens, if it indeed was a letter, it must have come in actually before the 18th, more around the 15th. Um, which even just makes the whole premise that someone was able to plan all this out with only four days after the 11th, uh, much more incredulous and just, you know, ridiculous. So even just that is, is, is hard to believe, but let's just assume let's like be, let's just assume it was also sent on the 18th, just following this timeline. So she's, but we know that the NBC and New York post, real anthrax letters that were sent from Trenton, New Jersey were postmarked on September 18th. That's verifiable. On September 20th, two other hoax letters were sent 
from St. Petersburg, Florida, to NBC and the New York Post. And so that, I mean, that alone is pretty weird, right? It's like same targets, two days apart, two completely different areas of the country that these letters are being sent from. And, you know, not possible that this was Bruce Ivins doing both of these. So I think we can say with certainty that all those things I just said are true. Would you agree? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So given that, then we, then we have to think, okay, well, the, okay, maybe that's just a crazy coincidence that lined up just on these two dates, right? Like, okay, can't be, it can't be like this for the rest of the timeline, right? I mean, if it was, then clearly, you know, how would you not be able to include these hoax letters as part of a coordinated, some kind of fear slash, you know, real murder campaign? Um, well, in fact, the timeline does show that the rest of the dates largely match up too. So we get another strange little blip on the timeline that is not directly related to this, but it's also important. She includes it in here is what's called the Quantico letter uh, that was accusing a guy named Dr. Assad, an Egyptian scientist who worked at U.S. Amrit, Vortedrick. Um, and basically this letter that was sent to the FBI was from someone anonymous saying that this guy, Dr. Assad, who worked for U.S. Amrit is a dangerous terrorist, and he is going to launch like a biological attack. Now, whoever sent this letter, amazing timing too. I mean, that's September 21st that someone predicted in some strange way that the anthrax attacks were coming, but seemingly accusing this guy of being behind them before they even happened. Um, I don't want to go too deep into that rabbit hole because that one... A lot of people have done a lot of really good work on that. The Hartford Current wrote an incredible investigative piece on that where they dig deeper into finding their potential other suspects, people who could have sent that letter, including Philip Zack, people like Marion Rippey, um, even Charles Brown, who continued to stay at Fort Dietrich in like a, I think like a managerial capacity or something like after all those people were gone. Um, that's a that's a whole other rabbit hole that I don't focus on personally because I feel like other people have laid all that out better than I ever could. And that's sort of ground well covered already. So don't ignore that. I'm not ignoring that in my positive. People have actually, there's all sorts of really opinionated people out there, Max, who, you know, they think that if you talk about, of course, you know how sensitive like the conspiracy culture can be. If you talk about things without talking about everything or a certain thing enough, it's sort of, you know, I've been accused of being a limited hangout simply because I don't make like the Philip Zach thing my primary focus. But I mean, feel free to check it out because it's it's really, it is like a huge, weird um, anomaly within the anthrax attacks that should be looked at. But there's also um, the strange sort of, you know, bait and switch, I, I guess probably not the right word for it, but the confusion surrounding when the first person actually reported to the FBI about an anthrax letter in this string of letters. And that actually happened on um, uh, September 25th. Uh, an employee at NBC News opened a St. Petersburg hoax letter that was postmarked September 20th. It was the one that I just mentioned earlier and was actually uh, she contacted the FBI that same day because the letter scared her so much and actually contained like white talcum powder. When she opened it up, 
it seemed to be implying that, you know, there was some kind of dangerous chemical in there. And that's why she called the FBI. Uh, the FBI actually came back to her and said, there's no anthrax in here. Um, you know, thanks for contacting us, but there's nothing here. But she actually just started to get sick. Now, it was later found, according to the FBI, that she had remembered later on, oh, I got another letter that I forgot about. And I don't, we don't, it's, she doesn't remember exactly when it arrived. We know that this letter was postmarked September 18th. So Barbara Hatch Rosenberg leaves it open by for, for a four-day window where the real letter arrived. So this person who reports to the FBI that she received a hoax letter, but she, I mean, she didn't say I received a hoax letter. She's like, I received this letter that looks like it's got, I think she even suggested to them it might be anthrax and they tested it negative. Um, but yet she started to get sick. And while this is all happening, like several days pass, she actually her nasal swab or she tests positive for anthrax. Yet the letter that she gave to the FBI tested negative. So according to what the FBI claims, they were like, do you remember opening anything else? And she's like, yes, I do. Uh, but it, you know, it didn't seem so weird at the time. But now that you mentioned it, I opened this letter that had like, like brown sandy substance, like fell out of the letter when I opened it. And so I guess they have a maintenance employee go into the building after hours and grab it out of the folder that she remembers putting it in where I guess NBC puts all their hate mail into like one folder and, and she just threw it into there. Um, but just one noteworthy thing about that is the very first report of opening one of these letters in the string of letter attacks was a talcum powder like burst, you know, out of a letter. It was like, it was sort of like the, the sort of, the iconic visual of the cloud of powder kind of coming out of a letter. It was almost meant to be visually, you know, you know, compelling, like scary. The actual real anthrax letter seems almost like other than the content of the writing in the letter, death to Israel, death to America, which I'm surprised she didn't remember that one. The actual anthrax in it was not, didn't seem to be designed to make any kind of visual impression. She confused it for sand. I mean, she didn't, it didn't, register to her as something dangerous. I mean, if we believing everything that's been said on the official record, who knows how many of this stuff is like, you know, manipulated or revised, but the point remains is that for some reason, the actual anthrax letter did not register as being the one that infected her. But yet the, and the FBI tested that one. They're like, we got anthrax here. Um, Arden, do you want to comment on that before we go to like the, the second round of the, letters no just that just that it's you know another case of hoax and real let two letters hoax and real both around the same time to the same place uh one from trenton one from st petersburg i do think it's really weird that she's just after the fact after she freaks out about this second letter that tests negative that she's like oh yeah there was that other letter with the terroristic threats and that weird brown, like mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to buy a little bit. I mean, not it's, hard to buy. It's just like, just feels goofy. It feels goofy. And I think part of the reason it feels goofy is because we have nothing to compare it. We don't know exactly what that letter, the hoax letter said. We don't know what it looked like. Uh, and also again, that this is, this is all before 
the first reported the first reports of anthrax uh this yes this all happened before so the this, first reports of stevens this is all on still in september that this all yeah, happened so, so it's so this is now like a third pair of letters where one's an alleged hoax and one is an alleged real letter that have all been sent to the same places from either trenton or st petersburg all before the first public exactly public the case so and i don't think that, that to me stands out yeah, and we don't know exactly what happened and why, you know, exactly when the FBI had determined that the that the letter that had arrived at NBC, the second one from Trenton, had real anthrax in it. We don't know exactly when, but it was it for some reason it didn't get reported until October 13th. Now, <clears throat> it says again on the timeline that her first symptom was the 25th of September. I mean, that's when she knew that she was getting sick. She was coming down with something, but for some reason, um, it was only reported on NBC news itself on October 12th. For some reason they sat on that. I mean, you would think, you know, if one of their employees is going to the FBI saying this, that they might've ran with that a little earlier. So it's interesting. I mean, I don't know the exact reason or how long it took for the FBI to determine that, but that's how long it took to be reported on, even though it was the yeah. first, one that the FBI was involved in, technically. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite it's goofy for a lot of different <laughs> different reasons. Yeah. So when I was saying earlier that there seems to be some coordination where it appears that you know if we look at this as a total one whole total crime or operation, and the St. Petersburg letters in coordination with the Trenton, New Jersey ones, it does seem like there was some coordination with waiting for information to be reported in the news first to set up or to perform the next stage or or next part of this plan. And the reason I say that is because on October 5th, that's when the next batch of letters gets mailed from St. Petersburg, specifically to Judith Miller at the New York Times and Howard Troxler at the St. Petersburg Times. I don't have no evidence for suggesting this, but it appears that they were waiting or whoever was sending them on October 5th might've been waiting for the news to arrive of the, of the first wave of what they've done, like basically landing and materializing in the news specifically, you know, there are serial killers who have been known to behave that way. I'm not saying who did this follows that profile, but you know, there is some resonance there that it could be. That's basically the words, their trigger to go to the next stage of the operation. I mean, of the whole timeline, I think we've really already given the most compelling examples here. Um, other than the fact that, you know, there are real letters that follow that second batch of St. Petersburg letters. And I'm trying to follow this timeline to see when they, those ones were postmarked. Um, Cause those postmarks don't, they don't line up quite as exactly no. And also there's like a long, there are weird delays. Like the. Leahy's letter. A Dashiell letter, November 15. There's No, there is one that gets mailed on November 15th. It says UK mailing of hoax letter to Dashiell. So there must have been more that rolled in later, but. Um, yeah, and I think that she's. 
I don't know if she would have revised this because this timeline I think is like an unrevised version from uh, I think I don't know if she includes those uh, later hoax letters in this larger theory she might um but there's I don't think there's anything I don't think there's anything about that UK letter that suggests it was um somehow coordinated right and uh, once it, you get that far out it's like you said the most compelling Things are in the early days before it was public. Okay, October 9th is the yeah. ten mailing to Dashiell and Leahy. Yeah, so the real anthrax letters were only sent to two media organizations um, that we can really prove, even though the FBI you know, largely believes or says that there was a third letter that was sent to the National Enquirer AMI building that killed Stevens. We just simply can't say that for sure because no letter's been found. Um, you know, that's, I, I don't think that that's, I, I think that that needs to be looked, scrutinized more. I mean, I've said why on, on previous podcasts. But, so the other two letters were sent to politicians. Um, the hoax letters, all four of them were sent just to media people. So that's sort of interesting that the hoax letters were sent to just media. Two of the targets were the same. Uh, one of the hoax letters was sent to someone connected, uh, you know, by the hip to the Bush administration, like someone really loyal to them who was involved in the biodefense, you know, beat. I mean, it's basically the main reporter in the U.S. covering biodefense. And some random, totally random, I mean, he's actually the only one that maybe doesn't even fit any sort of, if we're looking at like this overall template of, you know, scaring politicians and media simultaneously, why this guy? Um, was it meant to, again, add to the level of confusion? Like if there was something baked into this, because this hoax real dynamic, if we're looking at this as the overall same crime, uh, there seems to be something intentionally baked in where there was this intention to maybe confuse with this this, uh, hoax versus real and make it appear that the hoax letters were done maybe even by someone different than the real letters. It's hard to say what the intention was, but since we can't say that there weren't any coordination, I think we have to work on the assumption that there was some there was some real versus hoax dynamic that was baked into this crime that shaped it in some way. Um, and I think it's maybe even wise to think of that paradigm with other aspects of it as well. I guess the reason I'm mentioning that is because you know, just throwing a random in there, like Howard Troxler would sort of add to that level of confusion. It would sort of break, you know, if you're trying to make a profile of someone uh, for the overall eight letters and looking at them all in the same crime, there's aspects of just Howard Troxler being in there. It's sort of like, well, what does this mean? You know, like, were they trying to do that to throw us off? Uh, so it, it almost seems there's some intention seemingly maybe even there to, to confuse. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, I I don't really have any real thoughts beyond that on why Howard Troxler was a you know, a target. Um maybe you've maybe you've thought about that. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it's weird. I mean, you've got NBC, New York Post, New York Times, uh National Enquirer and Howard Troxler of the St. Petersburg Times. Like it's it's like it's a weird mix of media targets 
my <laughs> i was thinking earlier like i want to look through the different like things that howard troxler has written and be like who who did he write like a hit piece on <laughs> who did he did he write yeah. anything critical of rudy giuliani at any time he wrote something critical about like the post 9-11 climate which they have in the archive kind of saying like why is everybody freaking it's like kind of like one of those just like boilerplate but still like probably you know smarter than average editorials from like right after 9-11 where it's it's sort of just pushing back on the general explosion of like fear and compliance you know with like the bush administration interesting um, but beyond that i mean the only the only thing that popped up on my map uh, for him was that he lived really close. He had a property re- at one point really close to Paul Wolfowitz's condo. So maybe Paul Wolfowitz just saw him one day and he's just like, that guy. <laughs> him, him too. Yeah, Who he's else? just like, you know him what? Too. That fucking guy, he doesn't take his, he leaves his garbage cans out and it bothers me. I can see him from he, the window of my condo. the wrong way on yeah, the street. Yeah. So mad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm we're joking around here, but like I just did an episode on, uh, called Strange 9-11 Tales, and Paul Wolfowitz, I mean, of all the Bush people who and how they behaved on 9-11, it's almost, like, comical how much it seemed like he didn't give a fuck. Like, he wasn't even, like, trying to pretend to be, like, concerned on the day of 9-11. It's actually, like, one of the more funny accounts if you read about all the Bush officials and how they acted. So, I mean, you know, I, I have no evidence that he was behind the anthrax attacks, but again... You know, he was one of the guys that was very strongly trying to politically plant the this idea that Saddam had done them, which just going back to the documentary, I mean, the fact that they didn't even mention any of the politics uh, of what why that was so important to the Bush administration and anthrax and all that stuff, you know, is also a huge omission. I mean, even the National Geographic, uh, you know, dramatization at least had like a half an episode about how the FBI is being pressured by Bush to say it's Iraq, you know, and how it's like causing problems and, you know, whatever. Uh, that, you know, so at least they did that, but like this documentary didn't even have that. Um, and I'm just going off on a total ta- tangent now, but I guess the, you know, I think that it doesn't, it, it could have just been sort of a thing to throw people off, but there is something interesting here we haven't talked about yet is because it's sort of this foregone conclusion that Bruce Ivins is the killer, the FBI, of course, you know, has this sort of imaginary fifth letter that must have been sent to uh, the AMI building that Robert Stevens must have gotten infected by that must have been sent from Trenton, New Jersey. That's their baked-in sort of, well, because it's Bruce Ivins, it must have been sent from Trenton. But however, it is interesting that because of the, you know, just the fact that some of these, four of these hoax letters were sent from St. Petersburg, Maybe it was actually sent from St. Petersburg. And there's also something else, I think, that lends some, you know, credibility to that theory that maybe a real letter came from St. Petersburg or came from Florida or was part of the modus operandi of the St. Petersburg letter sender. And that was the inclusion of apparently there was baby powder, sweet smelling powder inside the letter that was described as arriving to AMI. Um, the, the witnesses who said they remember Stevens opening this letter that was previously thrown in the trash described him, the reason he put his nose up to it, which is, I guess, the, you know, well, he must, that's how he must have gotten infected, they'll say. 
is because it had an odor to it that smelled sweet. Uh, some people described it as laundry detergent. Other people described it as um, like almost like baby powder. And that's kind of, that lines up with the St. Petersburg letters. That's how everybody describes what those letters were like, what they had in them. So, you know, it does raise a lot of questions as to why, I mean, again, maybe let's just ask why and speculate on if it's so clear to you, Max, um, that this is such an important evidence point in the case, what are some reasons why it's not included anymore? I mean, we can assume there's been some revisionism or oversimplification over time for whatever reasons. Maybe people are lazy when they present this. But other than that, there does seem to be a deliberate... I mean, it's clear that there was like a course correction at some point in the way that they were framing this case. And they in the FBI must have decided even, just based on what you and I know, to not talk about this publicly, even though internally, and just so people, if people don't know this, the FBI internally for a long period in the case investigation thought that the St. Petersburg letters were part of the case. That's what they internally thought that produced leads in the case that they followed. So I don't know, Matt, what do you think about like what, why has that happened? Like, why is it not being talked about anymore? I mean, my my only assumption is that it's because if you look at them and you look at the timeline of it, that that there's no way that you can come to the conclusion they come to. And, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I it's either that or it's like uh, they just haven't put it together, but I just don't. I have a hard time believing that. Which is, I mean, I think we can say for a hundred percent certainty. You know, other than these little quotes and tidbits I've been able to find in these books saying that the FBI believed these letters were part of the case, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg wrote this timeline in 2002. She published it, and she also, like, was in regular contact with people in the FBI. They were actually using some of her stuff initially for, like, helping with the investigation. So there's no, there's absolutely no way they didn't know, you know, or at least we're not presented this. Let's just pretend... Uh, that they none of, that we don't have any evidence that they they believed in this internally, even though we do. They were they were presented with this, so they like had it all handed to them on a silver platter. Um, so, I mean, it really does raise a lot of, I think, really troubling questions as to why was the investigation basically stovepiped, as Richard Lambert said in his lawsuit against the Justice Department. It was stovepiped very early in the investigation, like. You know, they took so long to investigate it, um, but it seems like these letters kind of get erased from the record. I, I, like, it's pretty clear to me, and this is just from, you know, I went back and purchased uh, copies of books written about the anthrax case, like who did, you know, who done it, kind of like true crime investigative books. They were written, like, like the earliest, and... You know, I just almost did that because I'm a completist. Like, I, I have all this shit, and I wanted to just get as many more as I could to see if I missed anything. But I didn't realize by doing that what I would do is sort of uncover, at least in my own mind, this idea that the narrative changed and seemed to have gotten, like, deliberately narrowed after these books were written. And the timing of the books 
being written, I think is important. They both came out in 2003. They both came out when, when it was sort of like before, not just the Stephen Hadfield lawsuit, but before like any journalists, you know, came to rally to Stephen Hadfield's defense. So they were actually written during a period where like, I'm sure that Stephen Hadfield, if he could, he'd probably want, you know, to burn all these books or something because they actually surprisingly, you know, have just openly talk about why the FBI was looking at Hatfield. Um, you know, you have a very, very small quote in the, in the documentary you and I just watched Max, where one of the FBI officials says, you know, we had really, really good reasons for that. He was our main suspect. Like they were there. We were looking at him because our reasons were like really strong. Like that's the only thing that they say in the documentary but it's almost like you can kind of I, I almost read that. I don't know if you did similarly, where there's almost some frustration um, in there because it's like she knows they got sued. She knows they can't say what it was or what strong things there, there were that pointed to him. But she seems to still believe there were. And I find that a little bit interesting because that's something that I think we can point to timing-wise. And we have other evidence to suggest it too. Timing-wise, it does seem like his pushback as being named as a person of interest in the subsequent lawsuit shut down permanently almost any mention you can find of these hoax letters because, and it's not just, I'm not just pulling that out of my ass, in these 2003 books that I'm talking about, one of them is written by the Zodiac, uh, the David Fincher Zodiac movies based off of the Zodiac book, Robert Graysmith, says in his book that the FBI was looking at Hatfield in uh, Florida, his properties in Florida, because of the St. Petersburg letters. In fact, it wasn't just a, you know, a casual thing, oh, maybe you know, he lives sort of close there. That was the lead, one of the main leads, actually, that pointed them in the direction of Hatfield in the first place. So we're talking about the entire first half of the FBI's investigation was apparently based on the St. Petersburg letters lead. I mean, so what does that say about how big of a piece of evidence that was for them that's been, like, erased? I mean, I, I think it's, it's I don't really know how to describe it, but it, to me, it's just like once you've learned all this, it's it's like, that. Yeah, this is a lot of stuff that they literally can't talk about or they won't talk about because as soon as they do, not only will it lead to, you know, potential opening themselves up for lawsuits, but it'll also lead to just people asking questions. Like, how did you guys... So you just pinned it on a, a random guy? Like you pinned it on Ivan's and then called it a day and you knew this shit? So it almost just would make them look even worse, you know, if they were sitting on this. So I don't know. What are your th thoughts on that? Um, or if you have any different opinion than I just have about how I just laid it out. <laughs> Hatfield is uh, weird, but it, he seems to definitely serve a useful purpose, you know, uh, in making sure that those different things those different aspects of his, like as far as it relates to him, that those documents stay um, locked up, mm -hmm. that documentation stays locked up, anything regarding investigation about him. Uh, I mean, he's he's useful in terms of if you were trying to cover something up, um, it's good to have somebody that turns out, quote unquote, in the official record to be innocent um and you know files this lawsuit yeah i mean it, it's it's a he's a useful 
character in this story for whoever would want aspects of it obscured and covered up. And there's also a, you know, just going on the point about hoax versus real dynamic. I mean, the idea of having like a fall guy who ends up being the hero in the end, you know, who overcomes, you know, I'm not saying that the whole thing was kind of staged because that sounds, you know, that sounds absurd to suggest everybody was in on it. But you do have to wonder why the Bush administration actually stepped in and John Ashcroft, not just once, but three times, said something that clearly was like opening themselves up to like a legal civil lawsuit, which was John Ashcroft went on camera three separate times and said Stephen Hadfield is a person of interest. Why would he even need to say Like, why would he even need to comment on it at all? Like, couldn't the FBI just say it's still an ongoing investigation? Like, you know, they were, they had waited so long already. It had been, there wasn't any pressure from the Bush administration to, you know, close the investigation and, and pin on someone. That's sort of this impression that's been created, but that, that wasn't really happening. In fact, the Bush administration didn't give a fuck if the, if the anthrax, they already went into Iraq. They didn't care. The, the whole point, they rode off of that wave as hard as they could. And they're like, yeah, we're in Iraq, dude. Who gives a fuck? In fact, I had to just keep it going because, like, the mystery, you know, the mystery would actually probably serve them better than, because why would, like, pinning on, like, a white bioweapon scientist be good for them anyways? It doesn't even, so that, to me, that doesn't hold water. I, I think there's a plausible, I mean, theory that I'm going to propose here that John Ashcroft was actually sort of almost being like a sacrificial lamb for a sacrificial lamb that was almost meant to overcome at the end. And I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous to suggest, but I mean, let's just look at one piece of evidence that's in these early 2003 anthrax books I'm talking about. And think about if this was what happened to Bruce Ivins, like try to think of Bruce Ivins doing this. Um, and I think you would you would probably agree, Max, that it would rank as like, oh yeah, that's like the most suspicious thing I've ever heard about Bruce Ivan. That's that's pretty weird. Well, this is what happened with Stephen Hatfield is when they were when the FBI was going to search one of his properties in Florida, uh, they had gotten wind of the fact that I guess he had a mobile biological weapons like trailer, like like lab and like a trailer, like breaking pad style, like for bioweapons that he just was doing like as a hobby, like in his on his like Florida property. The FBI knew about this, and that's part of why they were going. That obviously that was what they wanted to raid. Well, sort of like Walter White style, the the trailer mysteriously vanishes, and they they the FBI believes, and they've said this, you know, off the record. They've said this. I don't know if they've said this officially, that he actually had like a friend in like high up in the military, like a military intelligence guy, hide the trailer for him and like destroy it basically somewhere. Like get like get rid of it essentially. I mean, if you had heard that about Bruce Ivins, Max, wouldn't you be like, "That's fucking yeah, that's really suspicious." No, that's totally normal. <laughs> that's like regular. I was doing that earlier today myself. Uh, no, that's weird, man. That's uh, and and what's weirder about it to me is that it's it just got you know the the toothpaste is out of the tube and i think it's like they know that they can't put it back in the tube you know but mm -hmm. they're hoping that nobody's going to notice that there's toothpaste everywhere yeah that's how this feels with 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 hatfill is that it's like they 
very clearly believe these things. There's documentation of it, but they just kind of moved on to Ivan's. And now it's like, well, all that other stuff, don't worry about that. This is the official. This is the official story. And this is the, the, this is what you have to believe. And we're not going to, we're not going to actually prove it with scientific evidence. We're going to just go on vibes. It's yeah, it's very strange. I mean, even this, I mean, they, you know, at first they claimed they, I mean, they were still claiming the documentary. The FBI is like super proud acting of their supposed scientific evidence, even though the NAS just could have bitch slapped them. It was like, what are you guys doing? Like, ridiculous. So they're, pre- they're pretending, you know, they're just hoping there's, I think they're just hoping there's so many layers of, it's hard to follow in a way. They're, they're hoping, I think they're just bet, hoping for that. Um, and I mean, just in addition to what we already mentioned about Hatfield, I forgot to mention this, Max, because this is a, I mean, this to me all connects it all together in a way that's, it, it's, it just gets eerie, honestly, the more you think about how vital the St. Petersburg letters really were. And just in adjacent, you know, like Stephen Hatfield is like adjacent to them. And this is another reason why I think that that's the case. Um, the FBI, when they went back to the AMI building, you know, remember they went back? Um, I, I mean, you you did the transcript for the Inquirer thing, which is super long. So I'm not going to like, if you don't remember this little detail, it's fine. But like the FBI went back a couple of years after. They went back, I think, in 2003 to swab the AMI building. Um, and they had to negotiate then with the new, you know, with David Packer about how, what they could take in the building, what they were able to do. So it's kind of like this weird negotiation where ultimately the FBI didn't have like a real search warrant. You know, it's a crime scene. It's a murder scene. So it's like a terrorist attack. They didn't, still did not have, uh, you know, the ability or so they claimed to do that. They were coming back there um, seemingly because they believed that the AMI crime scene itself could be linked to Stephen Hatfield. And they didn't necessarily say that it was because of the letter. They seemed to be back looking at the AMI crime scene simultaneously with conducting another like raid or property search of Stephen Hatfield. So at a, a small period of time, we know that the FBI, for some reason, thought that the AMI crime scene itself might be related to their suspect that they were looking at the time, which was Hatfield. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I don't know if they thought that a letter was sent from St. Petersburg, you know, by Hatfield. I don't know what that means, but it's just another thing to point to the fact that these were related. And because Hatfield has sued the government and won a $6 million settlement from them, and also like sued a bunch of journalists too, um, who like pleaded the fifth and, you know, just kept saying, I don't know. John Ashcroft said like, I don't know. And the, in the official testimony, like over like 80 times or something, it's almost, it's almost comical. If you watch the video clips of it, um, that, you know, it all seems kind of too perfect in a way. It's like someone threw a huge wrench into the investigative process to the FBI to fuck it up so badly that the FBI was basically forced to abandon their main suspect that they thought they had really strong evidence for. And then just like 
force themselves to make this Bruce Ivins thing fit kind of, you know, I don't know, six years after the attacks. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's kind of fascinating and it just makes me wonder if we'll ever get any more answers about this. I mean, it's who can like, who's even out there that'll admit, yeah, the Stephen Hatfield lawsuit made it like impossible for us to like talk about, you know, this, but there's gotta be someone out there who knows that's the case because I, I just, you know, even just that little clip in the documentary we were talking about where she seems frustrated. I, I think that they still believe, I would not be surprised if a lot of people in the FBI still thought that he was involved is what I'm saying. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe they, maybe, maybe they're even like, maybe it's Ivan's and Hatfield, you know, even though there's like no evidence to connect them at all together. Um, who knows what they actually fucking think? Um, Patrick Leahy, you know, says on camera in the movie Anthrax Wars, which is a weird kind of, I don't know what to call the movie, but they give Judith Miller, there's like Judith Miller's like a main character in it. Although it's critical of the anthrax investigation, they have a clip where Patrick Leahy, one of the targets says, I think that like the murderers are still out there. There is more, this, I don't think Bruce Ivins was involved. And if he was involved, he didn't do it alone. And basically like there, whoever did this is like still a murderer and still a, a lot like out there at work. Um, so that's a pretty strong accusation. And I think that there's a weird silence surrounding all this where a lot of reporters, you know, I've even talked to people who are fairly mainstream and they will fully admit that the anthrax attacks seems like it's some kind of inside job and not like a lone scientist, but like part of some kind of larger scheme to scare the American public. Um, so I don't know. I mean, do you want to like, and I'll conclude this with just some like speculation about how this was done or who might, you know, who might be behind it. Um, because I think, I guess the framing that I want to try to avoid is like, I don't think we can look at this anymore. Like, Oh, you know, who done it? It's, is it Stephen Hatfield? Is it Ken Alibic? Is it, um, is it these individuals? I mean, I almost feel like that's the wrong way to look at it because I think a lot of the evidence points to this being like very coordinated. Um, at least two people were involved in it and they both probably, well, we could say that one of them for sure would have had to have been vaccinated against anthrax. Um, so it's not just that some these people had the skills to manufacture anthrax. But, and again, we don't even know why does that have to be the case that whoever sent these was also the same person who manufactured it. I think that's also sort of framing trap. It's like, we don't know that for sure. That's also an assumption. If this was a team of people, for example, the senders could have been completely different. People who had zero anthrax skills whatsoever. They could have just been meatheads who were vaccinated for anthrax. I mean, that's also a possibility. So I don't know what like comes to your mind, Max, like when you've thought about this. I mean, you know, like what what are some theories that have run through your head or you have anything to say about any of my armchair theories I've just thrown out? No, I mean, I definitely think it's, it makes more sense on that level because this isn't just like who robbed the bank or who killed the old lady in the apartment building. You know, this is like, this is, I mean, they even say in the investigation of it, you know, this is somebody that had to have, there at some, someone with involvement had to have had access to weaponized anthrax 
even if they didn't have to have the knowledge of how to make it. Um, so you really do narrow it down to like, this isn't just something that like alone not really could do. I don't think, you know, I mean, even in the documentary, some of the other guys from the lab do say like, it would have actually required more sophistication than what we, any of us individually had access to. Yeah. Uh, and so I do think that it, it becomes hard. It becomes difficult to square the circle of this being just a random person or, you know, even if it's just like one guy from the lab, I just, it's hard to, to buy that. So I definitely agree. Um, it seems like there was coordination. It seems like there had to have been access to certain resources uh, and certain information. Um, and so, yeah, it does kind of suggest that there is something coordinated and yeah, like it would have been done by a group, uh, whatever that means. I mean, yeah. It, I, th I mean, obviously you have to be careful when speculating this type of stuff because it can be so quickly spin into like the memification of, you know, like, oh, inside job. Uh, but it's, you know, especially with how tied, uh, not necessarily, it's proximity to 9-11, which also has a similar feel to it. Um and the way that it was used, the way that it was weaponized, the way that it was sort of a spectacle event to be consumed in media. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you've laid out in your episodes and the documentary too, it's just clip after clip after clip. And those clips exist because they were out there being broadcast at all times. Um, so the spectacle sort of nature of it also to me sort of... Um, has a feel of it has a, a mouth feel <laughs> the same sort of mouth feel that 9-11 has of coordination and foreknowledge and and that to me is pretty spooky but we also brought up a point before we started recording and and uh i mean i hope you don't mind if i share this but the but wait that you said about whoever was behind the anthrax attacks had so little time to oh, prepare yeah plan them i mean if we're going by the postmark of the letters that we have you know that got sent from trenton that's september 18th that's seven days of planning and time required to pull this all off but then we you can even take the timeline even further back and say well no the stevens letter might have even come on come in on like the 15th if there was a letter um so that's really so four to seven days of time to plan it it does suggest that whoever did this had at the very least foreknowledge of when 9-11 would happen and what the yeah, effect of 9-11 would yeah, be. Yeah, because the letters re reference 9-11 and the terrorists and, and oh, there's going to be more just yeah. like this. Clearly uh, meant to piggyback. Whoever yeah. sent them was meant, was trying to create the impression that they were <clears throat> part of the same crime. And indeed, maybe they were, but in some completely inverted way that they were, I mean, that they were done by the same group or groups of people. And this was actually a two part crime. The nine 11 and anthrax were meant to sort of go together 
or, you know, that maybe someone, you know, after whoever, you know, everyone imagined 9-11 was pulled off, got this idea after and be like, well, let's do a second one. Um, and let's, you know, make it happen right after because we're going by the timing. I mean, this idea that Ivan's would have been able to create these type of weaponized spores, um, these kinds of spores in that short period of time and then plan this out seems rather unrealistic. I mean, and that's never really even addressed. It's like the little amount of time in between 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. Um, yeah. It's it's uh, never really talked about. And that, I mean, that is a really strange thing to think, well, because I think it's almost like too big and scary. It's like, well, then it does suggest that they were also somehow aware that 9-11 is going to happen. And I'm saying that kind of facetiously that like, I feel like they're probably involved in some way. I mean, right. Foreknowledge versus being involved in a crime is kind of, gets kind of, you know, murky. So. I mean, it could be like a need to <laughs> need to know thing, you know, like maybe they didn't know exactly how nine. Well, I mean, like they would have had to know if, if I don't know, I just, I try and put myself in the shoes of, if, of their version of Bruce Ivins, their version of <laughs> on September 11th, like, Oh, this thing just happened. And I have three days to spend all, I mean, I guess three to what, seven days, depending on when the, that first letter was actually sent. Yeah. I've got three to seven days to uh, do all of this and then send a letter from both Trenton and, I mean, presumably St. Petersburg. I mean, it's, I don't know. It, it's really hard to, what what's the thing that people always use to dispel belief in uh, in different sort of theories like this? The Occam's Razor thing. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's like to me, Occam's Razor would say that it doesn't make sense for somebody like Bruce Ivins or any lone nut scientist to just go, "I know what I'm going to do in the next seven days." Yeah. It, I'm going to do all of this stuff and nobody's going to notice. Because uh, that's another thing about all this. When was Ivan's actually gone after? Like the the final time before he I ended think, up killing himself? Well, that's a good question. I don't think the FBI has been fully candid about that. They claim, because like they've wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to be like, well, guy that was right under our noses happened to be the guy the whole time, you know, who's helping us on the case. That's one iteration of it. The other iteration of it is, oh my God, how did we miss this guy? Um, now we just got to start scrambling because he's our guy. And it was like it was like almost a decade, right? It, it was. Um, I well, he died in two thousand eight. So they they yeah. came out with their conclusions like a week after he committed suicide, and I think they had been looking at him. According to them, I think for like the previous two years or so. So I think like since the, the Hatfield lawsuit settlement, basically, they were looking at him. I guess what I'm saying is that it seems fucking batty to me to think that he would, between September 11th and <laughs> September 18th, done all of this stuff. And nobody would have noticed. Nobody would have said anything. 
and they wouldn't have gone after him for like six, seven years. Like, I don't know. It, it, it's just, it doesn't make sense to me that it would be him. It makes, it makes way more sense when you look at the dates and the things that are consistent and then the things that aren't consistent, the inconsistencies. It makes more sense to think, well, it had to be more than a couple people, more than one person, probably a couple, probably more than a couple, and people that knew about 9-11 before 9-11. And, like, who would have the foresight to do that other than the 9-11 hijackers, which I don't think it was them either. And it doesn't seem like anybody really thinks it was them at this point. Except for some people in the FBI very, very early in the case, apparently actually thought that because of the timing. Yeah. I mean, and the location, the proximity of where the hijackers were to Stevens. I mean, that is something that's very strange. And, you know, it's, it's, it is, it is almost too much of a coincidence to completely overlook. Um, but it's but, convenient. Of course. You know, yeah. it, it would be convenient if someone was trying to draw a connection between. Exactly. The hijackers. I mean, but it was a script that wasn't picked up on. It was not the narrative that, like, the Bush administration ran with, or anybody really ran with too hard. It was just kind of all the little coincidences were all there, a lot of them. And you know, the FBI weighs, you know, spent a lot of resources. Like they apparently they even swabbed um, the Pen- Shanksville, Pennsylvania crash scene for anthrax. Like that's how much they were looking at this angle and the Gloria Irish connection. That's also why they thought that there was some linkage between the hijackers and anthrax because, you know, that's, they, they were even looking at Irish like she was a suspect initially, like that somehow she was some kind of in go between, between the anthrax attacks and nine 11, like some, somehow they linked together through her. Um, so it is, it is very strange. I mean, it's you know what did you say earlier high strangeness yeah yeah there's like a lot of high strangeness i think which is like you probably know this i'm sure and probably people that listen to this too but you know high strangeness is that sort of concept of like you know the mirage the cloud of like bizarre things that kind of starts to cake itself onto like these nebulous things like the anthrax case where the reason that I thought of it was because you were talking about one of those letters that was talking about the Ridgeway bridge. And this is, I hope you're ready for the real thing, watch it fly. And then you, you said that that it felt to you almost like the um, Mothman stuff and the Mothman, all those moth, the Mothman stuff was like a lot of weird, high strangeness shit. That's just like, feels injected almost like the inconsistencies of the letters that feels like almost intentional. Um, like when you try and, when you try and create something random, but it still has this feel of like intentional inconsistency. Yeah. There's just a lot of strangeness around all of this stuff. And, and it, it, to me, it just sort of reinforces what I sort of feel about it, which is just that, it feels not necessarily like it feels like a a fact like a factional thing like there's a group the 
gaming for power in the power structure that was either exploiting some sort of uh, exercise or running an exercise and then sabotage. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. There could be any number of things, but that's how it feels to me is that it feels like there's some faction of the people that were involved in amping up aggressive hawkish foreign policy after 9-11 who must have been in some way at the very least had an interest in in the in tying the anthrax attacks to 9-11 in such a way that it's hard to believe that it was just one or two lone crazies yeah i mean even just looking at it from you know you're not even looking at the evidence it feels awfully convenient you know to have another perfect terror attack in a way just land in the bush administration's lap that was all the stuff they had said you know several of them directly said was going to come after 9-11 i mean don kagan didn't say it was going to come after 9-11 but he's like what if the terrorists had anthrax on that plane i mean so that's like, you know, a lot of these Bush administration officials is almost like they were preparing people already for it being the next attack. And they were saying that that as reasons why we need to like amp up our military to the degree they wanted. Cause it wasn't, cause they were like, yeah, this is not a one-off. Are you kidding me? Like, this is going to, this is like now our, this is reality now. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's the war on terror. So it it's plays such an integral part in, connecting that because i really do think as visually spectacular as 9-11 was i mean and how horrific it was i don't think that it would have created that extra le level of like the frequency like we gotta now we gotta think about this happening all the time now um you know i don't even think as bad as school shootings are i don't even think it has i mean maybe it has in some people's minds probably has actually <laughs> I'm saying that, but I don't, I don't know if school shootings ever reached that level of that heightenedness. Cause it was like, I do feel like nine 11 put a lot of people like just into some kind of shock, you know, maybe the way people reacted to Vegas or the Vegas shooting or like Columbine or even Sandy hook, like how crazy those felt when they initially hit people. But I just feel like this was, I just don't think we've ever been as fucking like vulnerable and heightened as as this time period was I in think modern history it's weird because for me like anthrax was not in my consciousness yeah when when 911 as much as 911 was but like i i i agree with what you're saying because i feel like it really does it spreads the terror out the feeling of terror of, of horror, it spreads it out. But I feel like it's, I feel like with anthrax, it's more targeted. Like it's targeted at journalists. It's targeted at the, the male workers, politicians. Yeah. Politicians. So I feel like it's, it's sort of, it's piggybacking on nine 11 and it has a more visceral intensity in terms of, I'm not, I wasn't really scared after 9-11 that like 
I wasn't scared to fly. I wasn't scared that a building I was in was going to get blown up. But if I had known about anthrax at that time, I was 15. If I had known about anthrax at that time, I was pretty neurotic. I mean, I would have been pretty freaked out by it, but I didn't, it wasn't really for me in the, it wasn't in the news in the same way that, that nine 11 was like, I did yeah. like nine 11 was the background. Like I had teachers that played Fox news like 24 seven. And it was always like nine 11 related stuff. And in the years, you know, the later years of the two thousands, there was, you know, the, the, the ramping up of Iraq and Afghanistan and shit like that. But but I don't remember anthrax being as a visceral thing at that time. But I do feel like it does, if I had known about it, it would have been far more visceral and intense of a fear because you don't think of 9-11 as something that's going to happen again. Like it didn't, I mean, maybe there were a couple of weeks where people were like, oh, they're going to, it's going to, they're going to fly another plane into another building. Um, but that, to, at least for me, maybe because I live far away from from New York, but I, it didn't feel like it was going to just keep happening. But with anthrax, it does seem like when you look back at the timeline that it was like, this could happen. You could get it in your house. Look at Audley Lundgren. Uh, you could get it at your job. Are you a postal worker? This could be you. This could be anywhere. It could have happened to you already, blah, blah, blah. You know, like there is that deeper level of terror i think with that it's more like pervasive and digs in and sort of lasts longer i mean we still are dealing with people with talks of bioweaponry you know and bioattacks from this country or that country i mean that we still think about that and talk about that more than we talk about oh they're going to blow up a building it, like, mm-hmm. I don't think most people walk around now thinking that that's just going to happen here. And, you know, I'm sure it could, but I, I think probably more people are still focused on bio terror. I uh, think you're right. I mean, now. So I think the legacy of it is much longer lasting. I think in terms of the visceral imagery, 9-11 is definitely more intense, but, but everything else, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, even like going, and and I just wanted to um, mention this before we wrap, but like the the '90s leading into 9/11, I mean, I remember some of the most genuinely scary, you know, um, type of fiction or or you know stuff that was that seemed like possible at the time to me was stuff like Outbreak or The Hot Zone. Or the stand, which uh, the you know the Stephen King books I think were written in the eighties, but the the miniseries came out in like the mid nineties, sort of in the Clinton era, where it starts with like a accidental like bioweapon, you know, release that just kills everybody in the world. It's like the how the movie starts, and I remember when I saw that as a kid, it was probably one of the scariest premises um, that I can distinctly remember as a kid. You know, besides the idea of like nuclear Armageddon. That was probably it, you know. Those two were in the by far in the top two. Um, so I do think there is something just 
on a deeper visceral level with bioweapons, getting sick, you know, dying slowly from some kind of stealth attack with some kind of virus or something. It's, it seems scarier. Um, I, I think, I mean, so I, I do think that the anthrax attacks, uh, because they were real, you know, wasn't just a hoax, even though these four St. Petersburg letters were, did not have real anthrax in them. People died from anthrax and that left, you know, even if like you're saying, you didn't even really remember it at the time. It, the people who made policy and like the biodefense sector, for example, that got enormous amounts of money after the anthrax attacks, they definitely like all the people in those sectors at the time, like they probably remember that more than nine 11, you know, because for them, it's like, Oh shit, we have this huge window of opportunity now where they're just going to throw cash at us because now there's been a bio weapon attack in this country, like an unprecedented thing that actually gives us an excuse to do all these things with that we've wanted to propose and do forever. Um, and it's, and I, I think that that's an aspect of all this. You know, I've just thought about this for the most part, most of this time as it was a, a means to get us into the Iraq war, get us into this perpetual state of fear and the war on terror. But I feel like that's too oversimplified. I mean, I feel like this actually enriched quite a lot of people and industries in ways that, um, you know, I wasn't even really aware of until COVID happened. I mean, the biodefense sector in and of itself is like, it's it's fucking huge and it's just also it's and when i say biodefense i basically mean they're doing secret bioweapons our country <laughs> makes secret biological weapons and it's just another part of the arms race um but i i do think the anthrax attacks opened us up for that there was a bioweapon attack so it's almost like a kinetic response it's like well we're we were attacked with a bioweapon and just it doesn't matter that bruce ivans was who they pinned it on years later just the mere fact that it happened is enough to like activate you know it could happen again exactly the russians could do it and it the will happen Chinese again max it. it will happen it will happen i mean that's literally because that is what they think or they mm -hmm. claim to think that that's that it's going to happen again because you know just like war with china and russia is going to happen eventually they have they all have like this timeline about all this shit where you know, it's like, what is Donald, what's the infamous Donald Rumsfeld quote? The known, the known knowns. Then do you have any hopes or any angles that you think are worth exploring, you know, other than what we're working on, we're trying to put some of what we're talking about in this podcast today in like a easily digestible written piece that people can pass around. Um, what other thoughts have you had or, you know, strategies that you think might be like good moving forward with, with trying to, I don't know, just get more exposure to this or just get some movement on it, on this whole case again. Uh, I mean, I think the work you're doing is good. Uh, Thanks. I <laughs> think these, the anniversary to talk about it on the anniversary is always a good thing. Uh, because that was sort of my first introduction to it. I, I mean, I had become more aware of it over the last like four or five years of the, the 2001 anthrax attacks, but really to like understand the ins and outs of it. I, it wasn't until listening to your uh, episode, I think last year, the one that I have since uh, helped you with the transcription work on. Um, 
so I think that's a good thing. Um, I think it's hopeful that there are so many people online that are taking interest in similar sorts of events and cases. I think it's promising that that more people might get into it over time. Younger people, maybe people who weren't alive yet to experience 9-11, uh, who discover it retroactively, or people like me who don't remember the anthrax attacks but discover it uh, retroactively. Um, I think that there are people that are interested in it. I mean, I think it has this true crime element to it, and that's such a big thing right now. I would, I think that it's something that is worth looking at, and, and I think more people will hopefully, uh, if we keep, uh, talking about it, but in, in terms of hopes that any sort of official closure or accountability will ever happen. I don't think that's, I don't have much hope for that, but I, I am hopeful that, that there are people out there that will take an, a new refreshed interest in this, uh, case 21 years later. I think I sadly I have to agree. I don't think that there's any going to be any real closure uh, for anybody. Um, there's already some people who I think you know still should be seen as potential suspects who could be involved who have now passed away. I mean, I think I've mentioned a few of them on the last podcast. Uh, you know, Mike Irish, uh, David Rustine, one of the people that the AMI building passed hands through um, has passed away. Um, I think all the people involved in the property of AMI since David Packer are potential suspects um, based on just how strange the subsequent, you know, cover-up of that whole situation was, including <clears throat> Rudy's cleanup company. Um, but I think I probably, the only new thing that's occurred to me that's like gives me hope is that there's still people out there that were directly impacted by this that knew either Bruce Ivins or that new people who passed away um, or that got infected um, who, who still are skeptical of the government's claims and who still seem to want to talk. Um, so that gives me some hope uh, that there's still, you know, maybe new information to glean from that. Um, you know, it's important to hear people's personal stories, but also, you know, who knows what information they could tell about stuff they've learned about the case or they were told by, investigators or, or whatnot. I mean, could be a lot of stuff out there just in regards to, you know, just like I was saying that a lot of this information has been knocked out or erased. Maybe they, you know, remember things uh, that the FBI told them personally that, you know, have never been put into the record, things like that. So um, that gives me hope. The idea of um, that there seems to be a lot of people doing like true crime stuff now gives me hope because I do feel like, to really make like, if you're going to put something out there about anthrax now and actually have it feel unique or original, you got to do a better job than like the Netflix documentary did. You know, it's got to be less boilerplate than that. And that maybe will just inherently challenge some of those types of people, these true crime YouTubers and all this stuff to actually look at some of the alternative theories and examine them and maybe even like push themselves to research it a little bit more. Um, so, you know, 
I, I, you know, so if you're a true crime, like podcaster out there, you do YouTube videos, this whole cache of documents we put on there is and the map, um, and the transcripts that are, we're going to put out. I mean, we'll just hand all this stuff to you and be like, look at all this stuff and make up your own mind. Like this is, you know, it's, it's not Bruce Ivan. I mean, what's the point of just doing a thing where you're going to be like, and here, you know, here's how Bruce Ivan's behavior was and you know why he's, he's such a creep and all this shit. It's like, we already, we can already agree that he probably was a creep or just a weird guy that may be a little more than eccentric. If he was actually shocking his sorority, that doesn't mean that he was involved in the anthrax attacks. So, um, so I don't know, Max, I mean, that's, pretty much where I'm going to leave it on this episode. Um, you know, and just we'll, we'll point to links to all the stuff we've been talking about. If you want to look into this case further links to previous little documentaries we've done about it. Um, and yeah, and, uh, hopefully we'll get this actual written piece up soon as well that you can help pass around. Um, if you just want to get more awareness of this case and you're already familiar with it, you have any final thoughts, Max? No, just I, I, I encourage people to, I would say, go back and listen to the episodes from last year. Go back to the, listen to the other Anthrax episodes. It really does lay out all this stuff and a lot of stuff that we didn't talk about. Like we talked about the timeline a lot, but the AMI building, the way that it passed hands, the, the archive of everything there that just there's so much strangeness there even further and the ways in which Rudy Giuliani is connected to it. I mean, it's, I don't know. And, and other figures that later turn up in, you know, Trump administration. I, I think it's worth very much a deeper look, even if you're just looking for a bizarre entertaining story, like it's got everything. It's got, <laughs> it's got, high strangeness it's got intrigue it's got weird weird guys who are obsessed with sorority codes <laughs> so i uh, yeah definitely go back and and listen to those earlier episodes um for a really good solid primer on everything about this case and thank you for having me on i really appreciate it yeah thanks for thanks for coming on and um We'll we'll do it again when our actual piece comes out. We'll try to get we'll try to get on democracy now. We'll have Amy, we'll get on Amy Goodman's good side and be like, hey, they said we got a new investigation. We're gonna present to you. I was crazy actually going back and looking. She actually did a pretty good segment on the Israeli art students thing. Um, it's like a half hour long with Christopher Ketchum. So you never know. You know, maybe there'll be some like normie progressive whatever out there that'll be like, you know, like I hear Tom Hartman is still like really interested in this, you know, there's, and there's a lot of like closeted people out there. When I say closeted, I mean like people who are like secretly think the Bush administration probably was involved in nine 11 who have like pretty mainstream gigs um, and just don't talk about it publicly. So, you know, that gives me some hope too, that it's like maybe some of those people will feel brave enough to step forward with just anthrax because it's, you know, there's less, it's less tainted. That's another maybe thing that's good about it is it's like not weighed down by like people arguing about hologram planes and, um, you know, how many like Israelis were dancing and like 
you know, the, the, if the Mossad planted the explosives. Yeah, it's that's one as... benefit is it hasn't been, like, memefied. <laughs> exactly. As much, so. Yeah. yeah. Like, the best truther bot or that conspiracy bot Twitter account will come up with is, like, did you know that anthrax, the anthrax in the 2001 attacks came from Fort Detrick? Like, it'll be, like, <laughs> just that, you know, like a picture of, like, Fort Detrick or something, like... <laughs> But so that's as t- so thank thank God that it's not going to get more tainted than that at least not anytime soon. So there's still a window of opportunity here to like you know get the good information out there you know before the before it becomes memeified. Um, so. And as more time goes on, you know, and all these like ancient ghouls, bad ghouls, not not good ghouls like me, uh, as they all sort of pass on. There'll be less people with an interest in keeping things obscured, I think, too. And it'll kind of strengthen numbers, baby. And yeah, yeah, just time, the passing of the of the time, the deathbed confessions, the you know, the changing mm-hmm. of the seasons. Yeah. Um, let's hope. You know. Hope so. Well, thanks, Max. And yeah, we'll we'll have to do this again in I don't know, a few months when when you actually uh when we actually get our shit together and write a piece, so Sounds good. I just want to remind you that you can become a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. And this gives you access to one bonus episode per month. There are two particular links in the show notes that would be especially interesting for people very unfamiliar with this case. One is Schrodinger's Super Patriot, a true crime podcast put together by Rob Rubarm and Abby Martin. And also make sure to check out all the links and show notes contained in this episode. We have several very important links, including links to our previous year's Anthrax podcasts, as well as links to our massive Anthrax cache containing over 1,000 documents. And the other link that you should pay close attention to is an older documentary made by Robbie Martin called American Anthrax, which is about 45 minutes long. Thanks for listening. Take care.